Hello, everybody. Welcome to Leftology. Today, I have on a guest uh, for an interview, uh, new author Nate Golden. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here to discuss the new book. Um, so just give us the name of the book and the uh, basic policy positions it's advocating for. Sure. Got it right here. Um, the book is called Five Radically Rational Policy Ideas for a Better World. Um, and so each there's five chapters in the book. Each chapter goes through a different policy proposal. And the theme is like these radically rational ideas. And I'm trying to get at the point that these some of these proposals might be outside the status quo of mainstream politics. But when you like look into the empirical evidence, um, they're actually like the most rational and sensible um, policy solutions. So I start uh, start with chapter one, which is about the free migration of people. Um, that's as simple as it sounds. It's just people should be able to move and live where they want. Chapter two is ending poverty through a universal basic income. Chapter three is taxing land. Chapter four is about boosting the quality of educators. I'm a teacher myself, um, and I know that education is really important and that teachers um, you know, are kind of central to the education process. And the fifth chapter is about democracy reform. Um, and each chapter ends with a how do we get there section to kind of paint the roadmap. Okay, we have this grand idea. What are steps we can take to actually implementing that um, and creating these policies? Okay, uh, before we get into going uh, deeper into these, uh, would you kind of just go over like how you came to these positions and where like sure. the evidence for each comes from? Yeah, I've been researching and writing about policy for a very long time. Um, so I've kind of had these like collection of sources I've kept on different things just for like um, to, to go back over myself or if I needed it um, for a discussion or something. Um, so I realized I was reading and writing about the same things a lot and that I thought, okay, these are some of the most important ideas and policy solutions that can really build the better world that I'm that like I want to use my career to help um, spring. So uh, yeah, so the book was just like, okay, I'm reading and writing about these things all the time. I want to put it into a formal place and kind of map a grand vision. And I think one of the best parts about the books is the sources. Um, I saw you have the Kindle edition. And I love how Kindle, you can click on the sources and, and see more. There's 205 sources in the book um, and you can kind of like, since each chapter could stand alone, you could really read a chapter and explore the sources and really dive into to that chapter um, and before you move on to the next, so. Yeah, yeah I, I just got the Kindle edition uh, earlier today, just kind of like look over it. And I really like how it's outlined on here because it does really feel like I could just go through one section, uh, read that on my own and then just skip all over the book and just like, it doesn't necessarily, like you might want it to be linear, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in how you organized it. Yeah, it's definitely really loosely linear. Like I try to make it flow a little bit, but each chapter can really stand on its own. Okay, so next let's just kind of go through the chapters. I don't want to uh, go through so much that people don't buy the book. That's, <laughs> um, but let's just, just uh, go over the kind of like the general ideas chapter by chapter. Uh, let's start just kind of the ideas talking about open borders here. Sure. Yeah, so the migration chapter, um, I start off and I kind of paint the picture of the current immigration system. A lot of people, even on the left, may not realize that, you know, if you don't have um, a family member in the United States, 
a job offer in the United States or you're a refugee, there's almost no way to enter the country. Um, and even if you meet those criteria, there's often long waiting lists. So I kind of walk the reader through that. The only other option is the lottery system, which, you know, it's a literal lottery. Um, so I kind of walk the reader through that and I'm, we're just like, okay, this is our current system. And then I explore some of the socioeconomic benefits of immigration. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that immigrants add to the economy and a lot of the economic arguments against immigration, like they steal jobs, um, don't actually hold up empirically. So I kind of walk through the empirical literature on how does immigration impact the economy and just society at large. Um, and then I conclude by saying, okay, the, the evidence says that immigration is good. Um, so we should try to get as much immigration as possible. And kind of the way to do that is through open borders, free migration. Um, and I discussed, there is some economic literature around that, that the consensus is that if the world opened borders, we'd probably double GDP. Um, so I kind of discuss how the US can open its borders and how it can be a, a leader in that regard. Um, and I, and towards the end of the book, I get into the details of like, okay, who has the levers of power over immigration? Because we're not going to snap our fingers and open the borders tomorrow. So how can we just increase immigration as much as possible? So I talk what, what can be done at the executive level? What can be done at the legislative level? What can be done at the state level, local level to help the reader really know what levers to pull on if they want to advocate for more immigration? Yeah, uh, just to add, I guess, kind of from my own experience, a couple of weeks ago, um, I myself was at the border helping with, um, and I got to see um, one of these facilities that they go into, not not ICE, but um, there's some like Catholic churches that run facilities near the border. Like um, there was, uh, I was in McAllen, which is on the little like tiny, I, I don't really know how to shape Texas correct, uh, but it's the southernmost part of Texas about there. And these facilities uh, just kind of add to the, I guess a pathos argument to your book. These facilities, while the best they have for these immigrants are not not good. Like they're sleeping on mats that are about, I, I measured it since I can't take photos in the facilities. They're about the width of two of my fingers. That's what they sleep on every night, just packed next to each other, uh, desperate for clothing. Um, I mean, the, this is a place where they stay, I think it was like six to 48 hours each person. It's just kind of sad to see. And my mother, who is generally a Republican culturally to some degree and economically, definitely, she went in there and she just gained the, like it was just kind of her worldview kind of changed too from seeing all this like suffering that some, the policies that she, I guess, upholds and some indirect way was affecting these people and that something needs to be done. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, like you're there during the Biden administration, right? And there was all this uproar about the tension at the border during the Trump administration, it's kind of faded now. The book, the book actually opens with a story about like an uproar about the, the, the um, quality of care at the detention facilities. And there's this uproar during the Trump administration of like all these pictures of, you know, you're not allowed to take pictures, but someone leaked some. Um, and so there's this uproar and then it turns out the pictures were taken during the Obama administration, um, which just kind of shows that no matter who's in power, the US immigration system, the way it is now, like there's going to be issues with detention at the border. And the only way you can really solve that um, is to just completely eliminate the restrictions. Yeah, I mean, this this isn't even a uh, detention center that I went to. The, I probably oh, yeah. imagine those 
those conditions are much, much worse because they're packed even more together. At least yeah. you get like maybe like five square feet in this facility. Um, sure. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty good summary of the immigration chapter. And like I said, there's just a lot of good empirical um, evidence that I was able to dig up um, to discuss like the impact of immigration. And I think when you're discussing immigration, there's a lot of um, false claims out there and it's good to have the tools to be able to debunk those. Yeah, uh, so let's move on uh, a little bit more, um, I guess, up in the air idea. There's just a bunch of different versions of this idea, but uh, UBI. Yeah, so yeah, this is kind of a, an area where I have a lot of direct expertise. I'm a research associate at the UBI Center. Um, I've done a lot of personal like economic simulations and analysis of cash transfer policies. Um, so I felt really equipped to write this chapter. So I kind of start by saying like, okay, you know, through poverty has existed throughout all of human history. Um, now, and is kind of one of those rare times where we actually have the tools to, and the resources to eliminate it if we choose. So poverty now is kind of like a policy choice or it's a choice we're making as humanity. Um, so if we want to eliminate poverty, like I go on to discuss, like I define poverty and poverty is a lack of resources, but in our society, you can really use cash to get those resources and people are the experts of their own lives. Um, so I kind of make the case that if we give, if we kind of set a poverty threshold and I discuss how there's a bunch of different poverty thresholds that we can use um, and say, okay, this, you know, this is how much cash you need to not be poor. And we guarantee everyone that income then we've eliminated poverty. And I go on to discuss the different ways we can do that. There's proposals such as a negative income tax, um, other measures that are means tested. And I kind of make the case um, in two ways that if we're going to have a welfare state that eliminates poverty, I um, use a lot of empirical evidence to show that um, cash is the best tool that we have to eliminate poverty. Um, and that too, that these benefits should be universal and not means tested because means tested um, implicitly puts more higher tax rates on lower income people. And I don't think many people think we should be taxing people at the bottom more. Um, so I kind of make the case that the welfare state should be cash-based and it should be universal. And after you draw those two conclusions, the, real, the only real conclusion from there is we should have a universal basic income. Um, and then just like all the other chapters, I start to talk about, well, how do we get there? Um, oh, and I, I forgot, I also go through the current welfare state. So like the current, like a lot of people haven't lived on the welfare state and they're not really aware of how bureaucratic and burdensome it is. So I also walk the reader through every welfare program we have um, just so they can get a state of, or an understanding of how messy it is and how a UBI would probably just be a, a lot simpler and more efficient. Uh, so a lot of the critiques I see from the right wing on our current welfare state, um, a mix of A, inefficiency, and then I guess B, uh, I'm not sure if this term is offensive or not, but uh, it just kind of encompasses the idea, but like how Reagan had the idea of like welfare queens, people who use it on uh, their welfare checks to buy uh, uh, like televisions and cars and so on and so on. Yeah, I mean, the right has some and like with the wrong intentions, there are like there are genuine gripes about the efficiency of the current welfare state. Like there are welfare cliffs, um, there are high marginal tax rates on the poor that discourage people from working. And it's not just it discourages them from working, 
we have examples where people have like an 80% marginal tax rate, what you're essentially doing is trapping that person in poverty because if they go work, they're only keeping 20 cents for every dollar. There's not much of an incentive there. Um, so there are inefficiencies of the current welfare state. And I think that is one of the benefits of the UBI. A lot of people talk about a UBI as like tacking it on to the current welfare state. But um, I kind of reject that in the book that the, the current welfare state is bad and we should replace it with something better. Um, you know, when we get into like the, the welfare queen persona, I do go into the book and talk about, okay, when we give people money, how does that affect their incentives to work? And there actually is a decent amount of literature. We have a lot of examples where people have gotten unconditional cash. Um, and we do see some small decreases in work, um, but it's, it's small. Um, and it's usually with mothers, students, um, and elderly folks. And these are demographics that you might say, well, maybe it's good that mothers stay home. Maybe it's good that students are focusing on their education. And maybe it's good that elderly people are able to enjoy their retirement. Um, so I also discussed like, you know, how UBI could increase leisure time and, and, and child development and things like that. There was a, a book I was reading a while back. Um, I forget what the current title is, but I believe the author's name is like Aaron Beninov or something around that. Um, and I believe in the fourth or fifth chapter, he goes over the different types of UBI. And it was just very interesting because beforehand I'd only been introduced to basically Yang's idea of UBI. And the, it extends, it's a very um, all-encompassing idea. You have your far right people who believe in your UBI and you also have your far left people who believe in UBI, but they're like completely different. Yeah. Um, and it explained like the furthest right, I believe this is like further right than neoliberal is that... Um, it's kind of like a, maybe like a paleocon argument for a UBI in that giving a thousand dollars to everybody can A, get rid of the welfare state and B, give people the time to go back to like church or be with their family. So moms don't have to work and stuff like that. But the yeah, left I mean, the more buy-in the better. So whatever, however people justify it. Well, um, that would, it wouldn't benefit the poor at all is the problem with that. Sure. Yeah. So it would just like replace all welfare benefits and just be like, you get your thousand a month yeah well like with the current welfare state like there aren't a lot of people getting a thousand dollars in cash a month like the only people that would be getting that are people on social security um and like with the yang ubi like i kind of make I, I address this in the book yang didn't include kids and it's like really important if you want to alleviate poverty to include kids um and kids is actually if you have a small amount of funding a lot of research we've done at the ubi center you should target kids first um and then expand outwards to adults if if that's how you have to do it politically. And I make that argument in the book that like, okay, how are we going to transition to a UBI? And I talk about two possibilities is the one expanding the child tax credit to be a child allowance, getting people used to universal checks. Um, and the second is a carbon tax and dividend. Um, I don't really go too deep into climate change, which is something we're going to need bold policy for in the book. But I do briefly discuss how, hey, climate change is a problem. We can address poverty and climate change at the same time through a carbon tax and dividend. So I do, I do kind of walk through that at the end of the chapter. So chapter three, um, this is something that I have no experience on, but a, a tax on the land or land tax. Yeah, um, this is my favorite chapter personally, um, and I had a friend who just finished the book, and he also told me it was his favorite chapter. Um, so, you know, there's a history of like, you know of the land tax movement, but like there hasn't been anything written on it really in like, you know, since Henry George's day, who's um, kind of the known father of the land value tax. But essentially the idea here is 
okay, we're going to, if we have a universal basic income, we're going to need to raise some revenue. What is the best way we can do that? Um, and like the, the higher level argument for a land tax, and I go into this more detail in the book, is that when you tax something, you get less of it. If we tax people's income, people are going to work less because they get less money um, from working. If we tax, if we have a consumption tax and things cost more money, people are less likely to buy those things. Um, and we see a decrease in consumption. If we tax carbon, we use less target carbon, et cetera. But if you tax land, you cannot have less land because there's a fixed amount of land. Um, so we don't have any dead weight loss. We don't lose any spending in the economy. So when we tax things like natural resources, which land is kind of like an econ term, meaning all natural resources, there's no dead weight loss. It doesn't um, harm the economy. Um, and there's actually benefits to taxing land because it encourages people to use their land more efficiently. So um, while most taxes shrink GDP, um, there's a lot of evidence um, that a land tax would actually increase GDP. And this is kind of the, a wonkier, weedsier chapter where I really get into the economics and I walk the reader through it slowly. Um, I don't assume any economic background. Um, and there's a lot of charts. And I think it's one of the more convincing chapters that even people who don't believe in a large welfare state or don't believe in open borders, everyone admits that we need to collect some tax revenue. We should do it in the most efficient way possible. And, and the most efficient way to do that is by taxing land. I mean, I, I don't know much more about this, so I don't exactly know what questions to ask. Um, sure. So like how would a land tax, I guess, differ from a property tax? Yeah, that's a great, that's a perfect question. Um, so. Right now we have a property tax. If you own a house, it you are taxed on the complete value of that property. And that property is really the value of the land plus the value of the structure on top of it, right? Um, the land tax would differ because um, it would only tax the land. It would not tax the structure on top of it. Um, you know, there's a fixed supply of land. So when we tax it, we can't have less of it. But when we tax property, when we tax those structures, it's a disincentive for people to build on their land. Um, so by targeting the land, um, let's say me and you each buy a plot of land and it's an exact same value of land. If I put a single family home on it and only I live in it, um, I haven't added much value except for to myself. Um, and so I'm taxed on the value of that property. You say you put a 10 story apartment complex on it and now you have, you know, 10 families that can live or whatever, how many ever units there are that can live in it. You've added a lot of value. Um, but you're going to be taxed more than me um, because your property is now more valuable. Um, so the property tax is kind of a disincentive for people to use their tax or their land efficiently. Um, but if we just tax the land, me and you pay the same rate. So we're both incentivized to use our land as efficiently as possible. Um, and there actually is some empirical evidence for this. There is um, some countries that have land tax. Pennsylvania, some Pennsylvania local government have exper experimented with taxing land. And we've seen this in practice. When you focus on taxing, taxing land instead of property, you get more housing and the, su the supply increases so the price drops. So the goal is also not just to fund a UBI, but kind of disincentivize like uh, sub suburban, like Levittown types of planning. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it kind of has that like side effect um, of, okay, we're, we're getting a lot of government revenue and um, it also will probably increase the density um, because people will use their land better. And when you increase, like there's other side effects, when you, you increase density, you like reduce carbon emissions and things like that because people are traveling less via car. And, um, so yeah, there's a lot of 
a lot of benefits. Uh, economists often call land tax the perfect tax um, because it's hard to it's hard to find any holes to poke in it. Okay, let's move on to education. Yeah, so this is kind of another area where I have a lot of expertise. I've been a public school teacher my whole career um, as a full-time job. Um, and so like I have a personal story where I've taught math for the last four years. I'm a, I'm a very good math teacher. Um, I moved to Maryland and I'm not able to teach math here because Maryland has really strict certification laws. Um, so I'm teaching history, which is an area I don't have expertise in. Um, so this kind of my anecdotal experience drove me to write this chapter in a way it's like, okay, we have things that are decreasing the quality of teachers. Um, one, there's just not enough supply of teachers. Uh, like we have a teacher shortage. So like usually if you wanna increase the supply, you need to increase the price. So we're gonna to need to pay teachers more. Um, and I discuss in the book, like probably the best way to do that isn't just to pump money into the current funding model. We probably wanna target high quality teachers with things like performance pay. Um, we wanna boost the quality of the work environment. Like teaching is often a very difficult work environment. And just like anything we can do to increase the supply of teachers will help us increase the quality. So it's really just a chapter of like, okay, how do we increase the supply of educators? How do we target it so that those reforms um, boost the quality of those educators? And what will the impacts be on the education system? Um, so yeah, there's like this one is where we're starting to get from one single, like, you know, the first chapter is one single policy proposal, open borders. Second one is a UBI. Third one's taxing land. This has more of like a couple niche policy proposals to um, get at one central idea, which is boosting the quality of educators and then boosting the quality of education across the country. Uh, so like, how would we exactly boost education? Would this be like increased property taxes or like going through funding and just kind of like reorganizing it? Yeah, there. so I talk about this a little, there are ways we can reorganize it. Like right now we pump a lot of money into teacher pensions. Um, and that's probably not an efficient way to attract top teacher talent. And it's often a drain on state budgets. Um, so we could probably shift pensions from long-term retirement benefits to teachers to just increase base salaries. And then other ways we're just going to need, um, you know, higher, higher taxes for more revenue for education. Um, I don't get too into it. Like I could have written a whole book on education policy. So I didn't want to get into like centralizing education funding and things like that. Um, but, um, yeah, we're probably going to need to spend a little bit more on education, but when we spend on things like UBI, um, and we alleviate poverty, um, that will probably make it so that we don't have to spend as much on education because it's harder to teach kids who are going through the trauma of poverty. Um, and that requires more resources at the school, but if we don't have kids living in poverty, we won't need, um, all these additional resources at school to, um, assist. Um, traumatized students. So there's a lot of push and pull and like you probably had to get into a little bit deeper than one chapter of a book to really get into how all these dynamics interact. I try to stay focused on let's boost the quality of teachers. Yeah. From my personal experience, which I mean, I'm not, I'm 19, so I'm not, not a teacher, nor do I quite plan to be. Um, but a couple years ago, um, very early 2019, I worked on a uh, referendum for our district, which the goal was to increase property taxes because a lot of our schools are from the 80s, 70s and before 
out of like the 22 or so that we have, um, I would say maybe at least like 15 of them were from the 80s or before. And the goal was to increase property tax. Uh, I forget what amount. It was probably like somewhere between like two to five percent to pay off a big loan they got. Um, and we lost that election about 30 to 70. But I mean, I'm in South Carolina. So what the hell else could I expect? Yeah. Uh, but it just seemed like the what I didn't get in like increased property taxes or new schools I did get in kind of like learning what the opposition to these positions really are. Um, so what I took from it is kind of, they exist, or at least like the anti-increased tax Republicans, I guess is the best way to describe them, kind of exist in this paradox where they do want better teachers, they don't better pay for teachers, but they don't want to put in the work or pay for it. And the way they justify this is always like pointing at like, overpay in administrators and the idea that we could reorganize these uh, the spending and do anything we want and I just I think that's a lie because you take out this big loan on top of um, what we're already spending and you expect to get all these new schools done um, like I toured these schools one of the middle schools um, has maybe like 10 of mobile units in the back and the day I visited on it, it had rained earlier. And even the sidewalk was kind of flooded. That's how bad they were getting. Yeah, yeah th I mean, there are some reallocating of funds. I don't think it can fully fund the changes we need in education. But um, it's also just like school districts are big entities and there's going to be inefficiencies. There's inefficiencies in big private companies too. Um, it's, it's easy to point at the little things and um, you know, and I do that myself. Like, what? Why is it like this um, as a teacher? But when you're we running, have, we definitely have administrative overpay. Our our superintendent makes way too much. I think yeah. it's like somewhere around like three hundred thousand. That's yeah, just, okay. that's oh, way too much. Sure, and I'm sure he has secretaries and things that are probably yeah. making you know a lot of money too. Um. Cool. I think that is a good transition to chapter five, which is the last chapter, um, kind of how you were speaking about the local Republicans in your area. Um, the last chapter is focused on democracy reform because we have some big, bold ideas here. Um, and it's not all of them are favorable ideas right now. UBI polling sits around near 50%. Um, but the other ideas such as like free migration, land tax, um, where there's not a lot of polling and even increases to teacher pay, these might not be favorable but favorable ideas yet. But the point is that if the 50% of people, greater than 50% of people believe something in a representative democracy, it should be reasonable process for it to become law. And that's just not the case right now. Um, you know, like people wanna say, is America a democracy or not? Like it's not a binary, it's a, you know, it's a scale. Um, and we are tipping further away from that scale um, due to things like gerrymandering and the natural bias of the Senate. Um, so this final chapter, which is the longest chapter, is really focused on how do we make a real representative democracy in America where every single person's vote counts the same? Like a lot of people, if you ask most Americans, should every person's vote count the same? A lot of people will say yes. But then when you ask them in practice, oh, like, you know, right now with the Senate, uh, if you live in California, you have two senators. California has almost 40 million people. 
Wyoming has a little over 500,000 people, also has two senators. So what you have with that system is that a person who lives in California, their vote counts about 170th as much as a person in Wyoming's in the, to elect the Senate. Um, which is why you have like a, you know, when Democrats are winning elections by a couple million, they're not always in power to implement the reforms that they run on. Um, so the last chapter has 10 ideas um, how we can implement a true representative democracy in the US. Yeah, Jeremy, it's probably, I would guess, somewhat the biggest problem because I looked it up and like, what South Carolina right now, uh, House of Representative wise, is one to six, a Democrat Republican. Yet, uh, Jamie Harrison won about 44% of the vote. I'm not going to expect all of those are going to be um, Democrats, but if it was truly fair in the state, we would at least have, out of the seven, two to three Democratic representatives. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, gerrymandering is just, I mean, it's just, so Democrats are, pro Joe Biden won the election by like 7 million votes. And there was a similar number in the House that so the Democrats in the last election won about 7 million more votes than Republicans. Because we just took the last census, we're redrawing the maps. Republicans hold most of the state legislators and they're drawing the maps in a way that if everyone voted the same way they did in 2020, um, Democrats would lose the House, even though 7 million more Americans would support Democrats. Um, and it's hard to call that a democracy when the majority um, is being ruled by a smaller minority. You know, like you always hear Republicans say things like the vocal or the silent majority re referring to Trump supporters, but they're really like a loud minority. Um, the majority of Americans prefer Democrats right now. Um, and Democrats do have control of the House, the presidency, and for now the Senate. But if the rules don't, if we don't fix the rules, um, Republicans will take control of the House in 2022, and they will take control of the Senate in 2024. Um, and even if Democrats can keep winning presidential elections, which is done in another unfair way through the Electoral College, um, they won't be able to pass any legislation. And I think what a lot of people are missing is that we're on a trajectory in America to enter a time where probably there's going to be almost no meaningful legislation passed at the federal level. Um, it is decently likely Democrats can keep winning the presidency in 2024 and maybe 2028. It's going to be hard for them to win Congress. So we're looking at, you know, at best a split Congress, Democrats hold the presidency, you're just not going to get legislation. So um, it is, um, you know, there's a lot of democracy doomers out there and we have to act quickly um, if we're going to really save American democracy. Yeah, it is really concerning just that all these problems just keep getting bigger and bigger. Like um, one of the biggest, I guess, paradoxes I see for uh, the right wing is that I mean, there's the common expression of do nothing Democrats, yet Mitch McConnell in 2010 stated that he was going to make sure that Obama didn't get a second term by limiting any possible legislation at all. Yeah, yeah and there's a lot of that. Um, and Democrats actually want to do a lot right now. And if Democrats had one or two more seats in the Senate where they didn't have to deal with Joe Manchin and Cinema, um, they'd probably be passing a lot of popular legislation, but they can't. Um, and 2022 will most so right now democrats are trying to pass some voting rights protections um the most important piece is this anti-gerrymandering um 
is that HR one? It's a little bit different. Yeah, HR one. Um, and now there's um, different versions around it floating, floating around. I think Mansion had his own. Um, they need to pass something that prevents re, uh, gerrymandering in 2022. If they don't, they will almost certainly lose the house. Um, right now, there's probably an 80% chance they would lose it. Um, and if they lose the house, they're not passing any legislation until the next cycle, um, which thought which is 2024. In 2024, it it'll be even harder. Um, so because they'll almost certainly lose the Senate. Um, uh, there is probably less than a 10% chance that the Democrats have the Senate in 2024. Uh, so it's kind of now or never. Stop gerrymandering. The, the path for Democrats is to stop gerrymandering in 2022, get the power in the House and the Senate to add DC and Puerto Rico statehood so that you have a chance in the Senate. That's really the only Democrats path the Democrats have forward. If they can't do those things, then Republicans are going to hold at least one of the legislator for a period of time that... Uh, could be a long time yeah it just kind of waiting for demographic shifts to finally come in yeah exactly which could be a long wait <laughs> um yeah so that's the kind of general ideas of the book i kind of felt like i ended on a little bit of a pessimistic attitude but the book is very optimistic um i talk about bold policy i talk about how we can implement it and there's a lot you can do at the state and local government level and i make sure to address that for every issue um and so that like it and I'm hoping to give people the tools they need to enact policy change around them um, and kind of have the, the, the knowledge and the skills to back up when you're in a discussion, a debate, et cetera. Yeah, seems like a very good book. Uh, so let's just tell people where they can get it. Sure, yeah, you can go to Amazon um, and buy it. Um, uh, I can share a link or you can go to my Twitter at NGPSU22, you'll see, you'll see the book. Um, you can get it on Kindle and paperback for now. I'm hoping to do um, an audio book at some point. Um, that might take some time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and I'll have those links down in the description below. So uh, go check it out if you can. Uh, there'll probably also be some social links for Nate down there too. Oh. Uh, thank you for coming on. It's been a great interview. And uh, thank you to all our viewers for watching. Great. Thanks so much for having me.